Welcome to the Art Stays Here Coalition's new podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. In the series, we'll hear from folks affected by the ongoing arts, music, and cultural displacement that's happening across the country. These include artists, musicians, and other creatives, as well as developers, policymakers, funders, operators, arts and cultural leaders, and more. They will share their stories and their own voices to best communicate the impact that cultural displacement has had on individuals and communities and how we can choose to make it stop. Good afternoon. This is the new Art Stays Here podcast, also known as Culture Crisis Conversations. My name is Amy Bennett. I'm a volunteer member of the Art Stays Here Coalition, and we're here today with my friend and colleague, Jim Grace. Why don't you introduce yourself? Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. So it's uh, Jim Grace, and I'm the director of the Arts and Business Council of Greater Boston. Great. For those of you who don't know, what is the Arts and Business Council of Greater Boston? That's a great question. So uh, it's evolved over the years. So we've been around for over 30 years. And we're actually a mashup of three different organizations now, the FP uh, Four Point Culture Coalition, Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, and the Arts and Business Council. So we've actually had three mergers in the last uh, 15 years now. So currently, we are primarily four major buckets of programming. The first is Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. So we are the legal kind of law firm for the arts. Uh, We have about 300, 400 lawyers that take cases from us. Uh, Luke Blackadar is the deputy director and also on-staff lawyer. He's the director of the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts program. Pause there. What kinds of um, calls, clients, who, who, what, what kind of service is in that bucket? Within the VLA, VLA is pretty broad. So VLA is really the legal side of an artistic practice. So that could be copyright. It could be contracts, a trademark, uh, a lot of disputes. A lot of folks are coming together to create, I call them art babies. You know, so anytime you have people come together, they make art babies, they might break up. I, you know, we're the specialty of the, uh, of the breakup, the artist breakup agreement. That's one of our claims to fame, I guess. Um, Therefore, the art baby prenup. Yes, the art baby divorce, okay. if you will. Yes, the separation agreement. I think I need a consultation yes, on that. Yes, everybody okay. does. Yeah. Um, so uh, other... Other pieces of the volunteer lawyers for arts, so nonprofits. Mm-hmm. We also we do about seventy percent arts or, you know, individuals and mm-hmm. about thirty percent arts organizations. Mm-hmm. So the forming of organizations, we do a lot of nonprofit uh, work, board work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, sometimes even like civil matters that come to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few criminal, although there have been some random cases where uh, we're involved in someone getting arrested, a public artist getting arrested, or street performers getting arrested, we would get involved in oh, those. That does happen. Right. Freedom of expression matters, where corporations are arresting people outside their First company. Amendment, of course, First Amendment, yep. you know, mm-hmm. those kind of things. Uh, so that does happen over the years. Is VLA national? VLA, the 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 general program type is national, but there's there's probably about... 30 programs, maybe. Across the country. Uh, across the country. Different names. Uh, creative lawyers for the arts. Sometimes they're embedded in government. Um, so there, there's different sizes. New York, California, 
um, Chicago have some of the bigger programs, you know, bigger cities, yep. bigger funding, you know, for the most part. And some of them have merged. So there's and been a case. And for that matter, is Arts and Business Council national and we're a chapter or how? Ha- ha- They're all separate too. Okay. So there's Arts and Business Councils and Business Volunteers for the Arts, what they used to be called, or Business com- com- Committees for the Arts. They're, the Americans for the Arts does have the New York chapter. Mm-hmm. And then so over the years, people have kept that name or moved it um, or evolved it over time. When Volunteer Lawyers for Arts merged with Arts and Business Council about about 10 years ago now, um, we just kept one and then VLA is a program Part name. It, yeah. But eventually we need to re- rebrand our whole organization, especially based on the conversation we're about to have about space. Exactly. You know, so I, we will and be you're evolving a lawyer. that. I am. I've been representing artists and arts organizations for 25 years. Are you also an artist? I am. I'm, I've been published a number of books over the years and... I did not know that. So yeah. you're a writer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. fiction? So, yeah. Or... No, uh, irreverent humor guidebooks. Oh, yeah. so, okay. Yeah. So how, we'll to, to how to Con them. Your Kids is one of like just those, guys, those kind of uh, just, you know. And how long have you served on the council? I've been there 25 years. I've been the director for 25 years. Yeah. Wow. First and only? No, it's, it was started uh, back in 1989, actually. Okay. And same, 1990 for the Arts and Business Council. Used to be called Business Volunteers for the Arts. You but. don't hear, a, or I don't hear, a lot of uh, people staying in one job for that long. So that must, yeah. I mean, you must like it. Yeah, or either I'm, you know, either I love it or I'm afraid of change. I, I, and depending on the day, I'm not quite sure. But what no, do you I'm love kidding. about it? I love working with creative people. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate and privileged to get to work with so many talented individuals and organizations doing, I think, some of the most important work out there. So I, I feel very... And it very, must change yeah. over the years. So meaning you're not dealing with the same people year in and year out. There's a lot of new faces coming in or new issues or things to help and deal with. Yeah. It's amazing, though, how over time you do see the patterns. I think I've personally represented over 3,000 artists um, and, you know, hundreds, if you know, hundreds and hundreds of organizations and on the life cycle from startup to growth to folding, you know, over time. So mm-hmm. I, there are patterns um, and space is a pattern that's been going on, you know, really for before my time, you know, so that that uh, but the business side of a creative practice is a forever opportunity and challenge and it's a resource issue and it's a language issue and it's, it's well, so, and, and know, it's many artists uh, have those challenges so that's so first yeah. bucket is vla volunteer lawyer for the arts let's go to the second bucket yeah the second is um business on board or get on board so one of the this is kind of we inherited this program in the merger but you know so with the idea of arts organizations and cultural institutions they need volunteers they need supporters they need champions and so the program is to get more people engaged in being a champion of the arts a patron a board member a volunteer committee member i don't whatever it's mm-hmm. pr- volunteer helper so do the um, organizations come to you or you're everybody. like the hub it's, yeah so okay. get on board is it's uh, working with companies that want their employees to be out in the good 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 citizens yep. but oftentimes they don't know the world of nonprofits they don't know the language of nonprofits and each obviously you know i mean each group creates their own barrier to with language mm-hmm. nonprofits no different mm-hmm. so it's a it's an introductory course to get people with some momentum to join an organization that means something to them and then do you match them we we used to match more but now with the now with the internet and now with you know different systems and platforms it's a little e- it's a little easier and harder i think mm-hmm. to some extent mm-hmm. but this is about relationships for the most part so how do we help create momentum so that somebody feels confident to go out there and hey i want to go work with an after school kids program great we'll teach you how to evaluate them learn about them and reach out to them and and how to 
hopefully be a good volunteer, a good, you know. That's great. Yeah. And, uh, for and so I think we've done, I think 4,000 people through that program. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so that's a great one. It's, I think it's underappreciated the value of nonprofit boards. Well, it's also COVID. potentially a giant, uh, cluster, you know, depending on which side you're on. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. Um, it's complex. And yeah. having a good board is so key and it's so hard to do and it's hard to retain board members. They're, like we could have a whole conversation about oh, boards. I, you, yeah. And that's, and we have an introductory course that's only three hours and we could talk about it for, mm-hmm. you know, but the, the appreciation of the value and the complexity of it and the resources needed to do it well and the systems that are involved in boards that are broken, you know, it's a, it's real. It's a whole other, that's a whole other and for folks who are listening who might not be aware, in terms of the sector of the arts, arts and culture, there are so many, if not the majority of organizations or businesses are nonprofit. And part of that is because you need to be a nonprofit in order to receive grant funding. And uh, so meaning there's so many nonprofits and a requirement of being a nonprofit is you must have a board and all of these types of things. So that that is a whole ecosystem of boards. Yeah. I think that it's evolving and I think that the newer folks coming in in arts administration, I think are pushing back against that kind of more traditional sense of a nonprofit structure. And we're, we're, we totally support that. We have a fiscal sponsor program. Um, and so I think the more there's this hybrid ability to keep control, but still also get benefits of the, of, of the tax and status, you see groups like Fractured Atlas, um, Boston Dance Alliance. There's, there's a number of the field. Um, so there's a number of fiscal sponsors that support artist practices. Mm-hmm. So you can have a practice and maybe you're doing a, a grant for a particular project, but you don't really want to start a nonprofit. You don't want to manage right. it. You don't want to lose control. And I think the evolution will be the hybrid over time. And I've, we've seen that explode, which I, which I do think is healthy. And when you say hybrid, you mean arts and culture groups that are doing, you know, ABC, whichever work, but they're not becoming their own nonprofit yeah. organization. But in order to receive grants or get that benefit, they'll have a fiscal agent. Yeah, okay. exactly. Well, especially think of a lot of films or music projects or whatever. You could have you could have that be a separate project in a larger practice. And you might be with multiple people. Maybe new groups are coming together for a particular project. So that's the, that is the challenge of nonprofits. It's kind of corporate-y. Mm-hmm. And it, it does limit people's ability to move quickly. And it, you know, there's cost to administration. There's and if you ask power some, some dynamics that are really whacked. Who might be lurking in the halls here. Uh, there, there's a some sentiment around that there's too many arts nonprofits around. Yeah, that's usually a funder's approach, but mm -hmm. that's not, that's never. The question is, is the need being filled? And the answer is there's never the need being filled and how people organize to do it. You're never going to hear me say there are too many nonprofits or Mm -hmm. too little. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, there's really it's a reason unfor- to even say it, right? It's an unfortunate like, yeah, yeah. framing yeah. to say. Yeah. The question is, are we meeting the needs of our constituency? And the obvious answer is no. So how people organize to do it, I really think is, it's uh, it's kind of like moving the cheese a bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, so yeah. So uh, business on board is a the bucket. second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So business on board, the second. So that idea is empowering people to be, um, you know, good, good participants, um, like human capital. It's a human capital program, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, the other program is professional practice. So a lot of the service organizations, so Arts and Business Council is a form of a service organization, and there's dozens in the city doing different things. 
So like, like many of them, we have a professional practice program. We have two fellowships. Uh, one is based in Roxbury and surrounding communities. It's called the Creative Entrepreneur Fellowship. It's 10 artists per year. It's a nine-month program. And it's focused on those artists and their practice and supporting their definition of success. Different group every time. We're, we're celebrating our 10th year anniversary with that program. All disciplines? All disciplines in that, which makes it, I think, interesting, actually more interesting than mm -hmm. if it was solely one discipline. And so can you um, give us a little picture of what that nine-month period what what goes on? Yeah, so we start with a retreat, and they, each individual artist will define success for themselves. So that the the idea of that program is to create momentum towards an artist's own definition of success, not my definition, not the groups, not the facilitators. So, however, they define success, and we use the Artist Thrive rubric. Mm -hmm. So it's artistthrive.org. You can check it out. Um, so we use that rubric, and we also have a self evaluation tool. So they the first part is how, what do you, how do you define success for this program for you in the next nine months. Mm -hmm. And that could be, it could be, it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then our goal is to then support them as a group towards their definition of success. And so that program, again, runs nine months. I, I, I've been involved in, you know, 14 different thousand ways to do this. I, what I like about that program is it gives time to implement momentum. There's a lot of programs that we still do that are one-offs. We call them seagulling. So, you know, like a, a seagull comes and just takes a piece and runs it. We call it seagulling. So we have programs you can just seagull. You know, you might, it's tax season and you want to workshop on tax, fine, happy to do it. But to create change does create, does um, sometimes require momentum, mm -hmm. which does require more resources and more time. Uh, and we're going to get back to this idea of time, mm -hmm. the, the privilege of time, mm -hmm. especially around space. Mm -hmm. So if we can give more time, so kind of a mile deep instead of a um, kind of a mile wide. Is there an example um, of someone in a cohort and maybe like what they were striving for or I'm just trying to yeah like I, what right happens during that time. yeah so you can set short-term goals or long-term goals we've had people set audacious long-term goals one person wanted to do a you know fellowship in a different country um, but it would take them years to get what it would be required to be accepted to a fellowship like that for example so you know we do encourage kind of short-term medium-term and then be audacious set a set a ridiculously positive, audacious goal. Mm -hmm. um, and then because, you know, this program is only 10 years old, but the entire program of professional practice is 25 years old. So I've had the benefit of being working with people for 25 years that, that I knew set a short-term goal and now are achieving their audacious goal that would take them 20 years to accomplish. So do um, you, do you then, once people set their goals, bring in um, like supports or coaches exactly. or like, yeah, exactly. Okay, so they get, they get individual coaching depending on what they need. And then we have, you know, we have a series of monthly workshops um, and that's, we usually pick the first couple and then the other ones are chosen based on the needs identified in the self-valuation. Okay. Um, so like another example would be, the power of saying something out loud. Mm. So one of the key components of this cohort is a peer group. So if you and I get together, and the research shows this, you and I get together, we make a goal. Mm -hmm. And I keep it to myself, you say it out loud and you bring a group around and to be kind of accountable to a group, not, not accountable in the negative way, but just once you say it out loud, then the group itself supports that person's goal. So that over a nine month period of time, if I set some initial goals, based on my definition of success. And then I set small to medium to long-term goals about that. And I get some momentum going mm -hmm. Then even after the program's over, 
It's more real. It's more real. You have your cohort, you have a network, you have, you know, now you might have somebody that can help you with social media, for example, or mm-hmm. you have a bookkeeper, or you have maybe different things that you're not, um, that aren't in your resource network. I was less familiar with that bucket. So that, so the bucket has two, one in Roxbury, that's the nine month yeah. cohort. Yeah. And, and we're actually other. doing one. We're actually starting one this year in Lowell, oh, in our new property excellent. in Lowell. Great. Um, and then we have another program called the Walter Feldman Fellowship, and that's New England wide. It's two artists per year. That's contemporary artists, and it's a it's a separate it's a separate nine month fellowship, and that's going towards their first solo show. Oh, so it's to be qualified, you can't have had your first solo show. So Walter Feldman, based on his experience, he taught at Brown for fifty four years. That his first solo show was a pivotal point in his career. You learned so many things for the first time. And and just the idea of he designed the program to be supporting that touch point, that first solo show, which I thought was an interesting way to define momentum. Definitely. Or to think about momentum. Oh, definitely. It, um, I mean, it it is it's it is a huge deal for someone to have their first solo yeah, show. Right. Yeah. And all the things that come to it, the preparation before it, afterwards. So everything is geared towards their first solo show. And so they do their publication, they do their website. We have a consultant that works with them on their language that they want to use and the collateral materials and press. And they're bo- and putting P- together their body of work. All it- all, they might have some of it done. They might have to finish some of it. Mm-hmm. They might have to like pick uh, you know, they might have to choose and that's not our choice. Obviously that's theirs with, mm-hmm. um, and then usually have somebody write an article about it that, that gets published. So it, again, every year it's different because each, every year the groups, the two artists are different Yeah, and we have a different juror for that every year. So you have a different network based Great. on the juror every year. So that alone is an interesting kind of how to define the success of a program. Wow. So that program is now, ten, it's 10 years. That program is now 10 years old this year too. Mm-hmm. So professional practice, we do about 40 workshops a year in collaboration with these two fellowship programs. Okay. So it's legal services, board services, professional practice, and the last one is space. Right. And that program we call the Creative Campus Program. Right. Um, So the focus Creative Campus, similar to other programs like ours, it's the idea of safe, affordable, permanent, equitable space where art is made, rehearsed, and seen. That's excellent. And that's what we need. And that's why we're here today. Right. So for people, you can check out the Arts and Business Council website. You can see all the buckets that uh, Jim is talking about. You can connect with him there. And now we're going to really get into the um, creative campus and talking about artist displacement and how to fix it as we move forward. So creative campus. Yeah. So just a little background. So because I started at the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, my first introduction of this was, I think it was my first week on the job. Okay. So my first week on the job, there was a building in Four Point, Sleeper Street, that the note they were note all the tenants. Now it's a parking garage, but at the time it was filled, and so it was live work or just work <laughs> squat. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> do you want the real answer? Or do you want like I have no idea. I'm sure some hybrid at that point in time. Um, this is late '80s, you know. So. For those who don't know, uh, we're talking about the Fort Point neighborhood, which is part of South Boston, technically. Yeah, right over the bridge. Yeah, right over the bridge from South Station. And it was that building that was kind of, in a sense, right over the bridge on the right-hand side. And so it was filled with artists. So my literally like my first week on the job, I get this, you know, not just one call, but like 20. Now, I trust me, I have no idea what I'm doing, okay? And so, you know, that was my first introduction is that when it happens, it happens fast. And it's too, it's also too late. What's the it? The displacement, 
it's either a purchase or it's a purchase happened five years ago and just got permitted for some type of redevelopment. So it's usually in phases. So what we mean is that there would be artists, a group of artists of various disciplines living or live working in a certain building or community. And at some, for some reason, and there are many, um, they have to, they get evicted and therefore potentially displaced. Yeah. Yeah. Once it gets sold and once it gets repermitted for a different use, they're all, it, that's the, that's, that's the end of the, They are going to get evicted. It's just a question that we got involved with is maybe we could buy them time. Mm-hmm. So I come from this at a place of just, if seeing the only benefit was just buying time was a terrible outcome. This looks like it was terrible. Um, so describe the call. You get 20 calls. What are the calls saying? I got my letter of termination. I got my notice of termination of my tenancy. It's really, so, you know, it's just like in, um, I'm being evicted. And, and how I can have you help months. me? I what should I do? What, what, yeah, what, what recourse do we have? Exactly. And usually the answer is, you know, time. Usually you say, okay, we can, we'll get you a lawyer through the Volunteer Lawyers for Arts program, represent you individually or a group. And, you know, the landlords know and the owners know that it's just a question of time. And so usually they'll throw some money at them or give them time or... Throw money at them to relocate. relocate? Yeah, okay. to relocate. Or, that if yep. you, if you agree to the terms, then you get some money to pay first last. You know, for for it depends if it's work. There's a lot more legal protections if you live there, obviously, than if it's just commercial space. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these were on commercial leases for the most part. Okay. So so that was my first introduction, and then over the years, I've seen dozens, if not more, of buildings that have been converted, sold, or lost. And so that's that's how we got. So we merged with the Four Point Culture Coalition about let's say eight or nine years ago now, maybe eight years ago now, um, and they developed Midway Studios. So that was the original developer of Midway Studios, which is eighty nine units of artist housing in Four Point. It used, uh, used to be on Midway Street on A Street, uh, no, oh, off on A Street. Okay, uh, the Channel. street block. Yeah, Channel Street it used to be called Midway. That's why that's why it's called Midway Studios. Okay, because um, that's the name. Of, it used to be the name of the street. And so I w- I'm a founding board member of the original board that developed Midway Studios. And so that was, again, my another big introduction in that space. Now, I was there at the time to help get legal services for that nonprofit, which we did. I think we, I think we generated like $400,000 in free legal services because they had a bond issuance. It was super complex. It, it was like a little, for me, it was like my real estate MBA I got through that process. So that was a, and it was a, it was a good, it was a, it was a, what, a really interesting what process. Was, what was the timing? What, what year ish was oh, this? Though it's probably been, I don't know, 14 years ago, I guess now, okay. 14, 15 years. Um, it was, so it was, that was a co-development with Bob Keen, who's a for-profit developer, which this, this is really replicable. The, the, almost the exact same scenario that Humphrey Street and you used is the same exact that was used to create Midway Studios. So it was a, partnership between a group of artists mm-hmm. that formed a nonprofit mm-hmm. with a for-profit developer with mm-hmm. a mission-driven focus. And in many ways, New Atlantic is a very much a precursor, Bob Keen was a precursor to them and their mission of artist housing and supporting the arts and supporting affordable housing, very much in the same... Meaning what ilk. we call a good guy developer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very focused on um, mostly affordable housing. So Bob Keen partnered with this group called Four Point Culture Coalition. They developed Midway Studios. Um, and then the group currently now kind of took over from the estate 
and to continue that legacy, which is a wonderful story in of itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so just to um, reiterate, there's 89, 89 li- units of, of housing. That's live work. Live work, yeah. which people own, not rent. Or uh, No, it's rent. Oh, it's yeah, rent. It's rent. It's not owned. No. Oh, it interesting. Was, it was originally designed to be a limited equity co-op which we can talk about. That's what uh, 249 and 300 summer in four point are. That's the, that's the model that, that was used at that time. Um, but no, Midway is, a, um, Midway is rental. And the first floor has got some really great organizations, cultural equity incubators there. Masari studios is there. Um, it's got some really interesting groups on the first floor. Okay, great. So yeah. So anyway, so that's uh, that project uh, happened. And then, um, you got, I got, you got I, bit. I got, you I got, got bit. I got bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I learned a ton and it was definitely to see where a group coming together could make a difference on a permanent level. Now the original plans for Midway turned out to be rentals. So I think it's still a wonderful outcome, but it was a good lesson that whatever you think you're doing doesn't always work out that way, depending on market forces, people, personalities, and politics. all the other politics. It's so complex. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really is where I got bit. That's where I got my first kind of education in what it looks like to develop a space in partnership with other groups, partnering with for-profit developers. The city was involved, philanthropy. I mean, it was the beginning of that journey for me to say, oh, this is this is one possible, but it does take an incredible amount of resources. And a village. And it takes a lot of people mm-hmm. and a lot of different types of um, interests that do have to and momentum. and momentum. Yeah. hundred. Yeah. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. And even when you think you get it right, Bob Keen unfortunately passed away and that's why the building came out of his estate, which is why the other group had to kind of save it from another opportunity to lose it. So even though we created it, it there was a real chance it was going to be lost even after you created it. Is so that, that's uh, another whole story, but that, that's we should a, come yeah. back to that another yeah. time because maybe that, that was an art baby that needed a prenup or something maybe, or I, yeah, well, it it did in a sense because um, it's just that when you have co ownership, when one of the owners passes away, then it's then you have to it has to their, deal, dealt with their legacy their people, right? Yeah, exactly. it has to be dealt with. Well, their and that's state. what yeah. um, Humphrey Street had to deal with too um, after Joe and Neil passed away. But anyway, yes, that's a great that's a great point. Yeah. Um, so so thinking ahead, we are because it's permanent then there's other plannings that need to be required than just a short-term program. Like most of our programs are one year. Right. The, these, these, these are per, forever programs. These are cultural assets. And so what Jim is talking about for people who might not be aware is that a lot of the arts, culture, music displacement has been commercial or otherwise real estate that either gets sold, bought, redeveloped, like he's saying, repermitted some other use. And then people get displaced and the real the only real solution and people who um, are involved in this work everyone knows the real answer is ownership and we mean buying property buying buildings developing things that are owned and have a certain use and we like to use the word uh, in perpetuity that's a really hard thing to do without all of the resources smarts knowledge people momentum and also property uh values, especially in our area, have done nothing but skyrocket for decades, making it even harder. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the formula before was that it would be kind of silly to buy because it was so cheap to rent. But once that inflection point crosses, Flipped. then it's impossible to buy because you don't have the capital. Mm-hmm. So when it was cheaper to buy, the capital didn't seem like a good, it didn't seem like a wise thing to do. Mm-hmm. Could you give a little bit of an overview about you know, the art neighborhood of 
Fort Point and think about people who are younger than us, who might not know what it was like and kind of what happened. Yeah. So our office has been in Fort Point for years. Um, and so Fort Point was at one time the largest artist community in New England. It had, the numbers vary, but at least five, six, seven hundred artists uh, working there. Um, it was Boston Wharf owned primarily most of the neighborhood. So it was the post office, Boston Wharf. And there was one lease. It was kind of almost like a mini artist union. Um, FPAC was FPAC was the group that kind of represented the artist in Fort Point. That's uh, the Fort Point artist community. Yep. Yep. And they had one lease and they kind of jointly negotiated one lease with, with, uh, um, with Boston Wharf for all of the space that they control where the artists were in. So it was very cool. It was like, it really was like a hybrid union for individual artists rental. It was very cool. Um, and, and, you know, artists would rent one floor and then those artists would then rent to a bunch of other people, Mm -hmm. sublet it. And, you know, so it was a network of buildings across an entire, I mean, Boston Wharf bought these buildings back in like the the 1800s, early 1905, you know, that kind of thing. And they were mostly shipping and warehouses and light manufacturing, turn of the century. And the artists uh, started to move in and build them out and Boston Wharf rented to them. and, And then as things gentrified slowly, they all got kicked out. Buildings got sold. Um, Generations changed hands. Yeah, right. And, yeah, and then Boston Wharf started to sell off big chunks of their of their portfolio. Big companies bought them, and you no know, one stopped them. Building by yeah, little by little, not little, but in chunks actually. Buildings were lost and redeveloped over time. And I think if you want, I think at the end you're going to ask me what's the lesson to be learned. The lesson is that the only buildings left at Fort in Fort Point where there are artists are buildings that are owned by the artist or some type of entity, limited equity co-op, a nonprofit or something. By intent. Well, yeah, that those are the only ones left. So if I think that if the lesson is, even if it's a thriving community, if you don't own it, I say this all the time, like, mm-hmm. you know, creative campus, if you don't own it, you're, you're done. Like there's, if you don't own it, eventually you can set your clock. It's going to be over eventually. Because cash is king. Companies change hands. People die. Children's inherit. You know, kids inherit things. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one of the biggest pivot points in many of the buildings I've seen over the last twenty years. Is that once the founding person, who really developed it, worked with the artist, built it out, once that person passes away, it's really hard for the other family members, based on the appraised value, you know, based on the elevated value of that property, for it to be kept in the family. It's very rare. Well, also because whoever the founding people who you know they have the it's their passion project, yeah. and then it's not necessarily passed down as a passion project. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Or people don't want to pick it up. Um, speaking uh, about Fort Point during that, you know, change of buildings ownership, um, kind of the skyline, really. Um, Was there any advocacy? Did artists try to fight? Did... Oh, a ton. Yeah. There was a whole bunch of groups, a whole bunch of groups that did... There was groups that focused on like the master plan um, for the entire neighborhood. That was... That's what they used to call it, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. when the city had one and they really advocated strongly for different parts to keep artists. FPAC was obviously a huge advocate for all the artists there. FPCC obviously developed the Midway Studios, um, and there was a lot of those folks were on the same board. So it was it was it was cross pollinated by everybody. Um, you had city folks that were involved. Um, 
yeah, so it was a it was really a joint effort. There was there was a lot of advocacy. Do you feel um, there's a huge loss, and do you feel sad, or do you feel that was the situation, and now things are changing, or? Well, I think you should have them on, on, yeah. on the package. I mean, they they took over the Envoy Hotel as mm-hmm. a piece. They're doing another massive part of a development there too. So the advocacy within Four Point, within FPAC and those groups, is as strong as ever. Um, so yeah, they're doing a they're doing a wonderful job. That, obviously, it's in their community. And you still live there? Well, I, I our office is there. Okay. I don't live there, but our okay. offices, are, the Arts and Business Council offices are there. We're a member of the Cultural Equity Incubator in yep. Midway Studios. Got it. So that can bring us to, we talked about Midway and we talked about you getting the bug and then we could talk about Lowell? Yeah. So um, the history is that we, we actually developed um, a, a, a shared office space in Midway Studios we called the Art Service Coalition Group. And so we developed a space... Uh, and that was at that time Mass Creative, State Source, Herself, Mass Poetry, and a couple other groups. So Arts and Business Council developed that space in Midway Studios after it was sold. And so now that that has evolved into the Cultural Equity Incubator space. So they took that space over and, and do amazing things with it. So um, so it starts with uh, FPCC, Midway Studios, this kind of art service coalition space. Uh, we did purchase a building in Worcester about six years ago. And that was our really ma- first major development project. It was a former Boys and Girls Club that was decommissioned years ago and has been empty for about 25 years. Um, so we partnered with a wonderful group, uh, Creative Hub Worcester. And and they are actually, we just actually sold that to them uh, last, maybe now it's about eight weeks ago. Mm. And so they picked up the baton there and they're going to be the owner developer of that space uh, so that was a major deal preservation. for us. Preservation. Yeah, preservation, um, historic preservation. They have a focus on kids and arts and a community arts center. And they're going to do wonderful things with that space. But that took six years of our time to kind of save that and um, and get it in a place that it could be transferred. Was that a similar situation to Midway and like what we talk about with Humphrey Street where all the pieces had to come together and all... Everybody had to help and bring their piece to the pie. Yes, and it, that's a more complicated one because that was like the original Midway. That was a gut rehab, so mm-hmm. Midway was empty, mm-hmm. and it took you know fourteen million dollars to put bring that back to life. the The Worcester program is probably seventeen million dollars, mm-hmm. so it's a full gut rehab. Mm-hmm. And because of COVID and all the delays and uh, the the playing games with the federal tax credits and who got them and who didn't based on the public you know, based on the parties, you know that delayed that program that project for years. Mm. So, you know, but for COVID and all the all the issues with uh, some of the tax credits, that project took longer and is more expensive than it had to be. Got it. So that I think that's another lesson is that, they usually do. <laughs> yeah, but that's a you know, lesson is that. Uh, these full development projects are incredibly time-consuming, incredibly resource-intensive, and small organizations like ours taking on a project like that is just really, really hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, eats up a lot of human resources. Oh my gosh, yeah, six years just to get it stabilized, just to be able to pass it on. Great. Well, it's yeah. it's heroic that now they own it. Yeah. So it is preserved. Yeah. Agreed. In perpetuity, and, and it's they, and it's and it's controlled by the local group that's in that community. Perfect. So that fits within our kind of mission for the program as well. But it was probably, I don't know, it was probably a couple million dollars that we had to generate to keep it going. And mm-hmm. then we transferred over $5 million in equity mm. with the building just for 
tax credits and permitting and all the things that went into it. So Well, it's also good for Worcester. I mean, Worcester had hard, hard times and it's been, the culture has helped Oh yeah, Worcester yeah. rise up. Think of the Hanover alone. Think yeah. of the economic impact of the Hanover. Yeah, and the but Worcester it's gentrifying fast. And, uh, there's so yeah. much Worcester happening. Art Museum, yes, yeah. um, but it's gentrifying really fast. They've mm-hmm. built thousands of new units. The mm-hmm. ballpark there, mm-hmm. um, and so people are already being displaced there. Well, and that's kind of brings us to Lowell because my understanding, you're, when you were talking about what was happening, the Exodus kind of in Fort Point, at that time, Western Ave was coming up is my understanding originally, yeah. right? So yeah. you had, so I'm not saying all of Fort Point went to Western Ave, but like some did. And it was like, we have to move out and kind of do the same thing. Take these industrial or what were mill buildings and the artists come in, make it great. And then 20 years later. Yeah, that's a great point. And they, a lot of the artists in Fort Point went to, you know, Arlington or Cambridge or Rhode Island. You saw, you Pawtucket. saw yeah, mm-hmm. Pawtucket, a big group, Lawrence, mm-hmm. Lowell, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. They kind of, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see if you had like a map where they all we went. Make like, that mm-hmm. would be really interesting mm-hmm. to see where people ended. But it was definitely in that arc. You mm-hmm. know, the 495 arc, I think, mm-hmm. would be probably a fair assessment. Yep. Um, but yeah, and, and a bunch of them did go up to Lawrence and Lowell. And um, there's a developer up there who just kind of teamed up with a bunch of artists because he was... Uh, Good guy. Yeah, it's really amazing story. Actually, it took you know it took seventeen years from empty to full of three hundred studios and you know three hundred and seventy artists and. So, um, for people yeah. who don't know, Western Avenue Studios is both a work studio building with three hundred studios. Two hundred, yeah, two hundred fifty work only. Okay, and, and then 50 it's also live work. A, a kind of side building that has live workspaces that are called the lofts. Correct. Okay, great. And in between those two things is a separate makerspace. Yeah, Lowell Makes, wonderful organization. They got like, I think 250 members. members. Um, yep. Similar kind of like an artisan asylum, but mm-hmm. for Lowell. Mm-hmm. A uh, similar kind of vibe, a little mm-hmm. smaller in size, but a uh, great organization. So yeah, so it's a campus of five buildings. We own four of them. Lowell Makes owns one. It's, uh, it has 250 work-only studios. Mm-hmm. It has 50 apartments or lofts. Mm-hmm. It has a brewery, mm-hmm. uh, a coffee shop, mm-hmm. a gallery, nonprofit, mm-hmm. separate nonprofit gallery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now and, and a venue. Per, yeah, a new performance venue, 200-person yep. performance venue um, called Taffeta, which is, they're doing a great, great job there. Mm-hmm. And they're fixing that space up. It's got 200 and something parking spaces on five acres. It's like a quite a it's, heaven. it's like quite a space in that way. Yeah. When I went there, I was just like, I want to come here every single weekend, or I want to move here, or um, you know. And the people were psyched. People, the artists who were working there and living there, it was just, um, you know. So Jim and I and other people are, you know, heavy, heavy involved with you know the result of arts displacement and hearing so many sad stories of artists and what they've lost over time and actually going to Western Ave in the middle of all of that for me was like hope Hmm. and um, liveliness and livelihood and people selling stuff and people visiting and it um, every single month there's open studios for Saturday Saturday every month yeah all year plus an extra one for holidays and the spring engagement and um, it just um it felt like it was supposed to feel like what the things that were supposed to have around here, except it just wasn't here. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, in some ways it reminded me of four point in the day when I first started to go to four point mm-hmm. and, and it's, 
it's almost the size. I mean, Fort Point was bigger because it's a whole neighborhood, but but you know you have three hundred and seventy which is almost the size of a neighborhood Yes, for that. Well, and so that's kind of the anchor, I would say, of Arts in Lowell, although there are, you know, still galleries, museums, uh, UMass Lowell, there's, you know, the Whistler, there's... Um, well, the biggest is the, the National Park. Yes. Which is amazing. Yes. Yeah. And so the industrial past, and this building is part of our kind of industrial industrial history in that way. Mm-hmm. Fabric was a big part of, of that history, and... Um, Textiles. Side, side note, you don't know about me. I, for one year, worked at the New England Quilt Museum. Oh, wow. Right there in Lowell. Oh, wow. Had never sewn a stitch in my life because my mother never taught me because my mother didn't know how because she didn't need to. My mother went to college. Her mother knew how. And all the ladies there, I went there as a marketing, doing marketing. They taught me to sew. And now I'm a quilter. That's awesome. And I have a saying, which is there's a lot to love about Lowell. There is a lot I mean, to love about Lowell. A lot of people say different things, but it, Lowell is fantastic. Between Jack Kerouac and the Mill Girls, and it's just so much. And um, there's actually even a lot of music that has come. Yeah. I, used to, I used to manage a band called The Shods, which were from there and still live in the area. Um, and that's why Western Ave is so great because it has everything. You can live there, you can work there, you can play shows there, you can show your work there, you can receive visitors. And there's just so much. When I visited, between traditional artists, photographer. Oh, there's also a photography lab, mm-hmm. a dark room, an actual traditional dark room. There are galleries on site. One of the ones that I, the closet gallery, I loved that so much. It was, it is it a closet, was, yeah, right? Yeah, it was a maintenance closet. Yeah. But it now has white walls and people show. And um, it's tiny and you get immersed, literally immersed because you're in a closet. There's really only room for one or two people. I just loved being there and I wished it wasn't so far from Boston. I mean, it's not far, but it's not something you do every day if you live here. And I encourage people all the time to go to open studios and to go up there. I've bought a lot of art from folks while I was there. And interestingly enough, one of the coalition's project, as you know, are the uh, artist group at 119 Braintree Street in Alston. Um, and there was a painter there. Her name was Anne-Marie. She's actually French. She, uh, during this whole year-long thing with 119, she actually moved from there and is now at Western Ave in one of the work studios. Oh, wow. So I saw her while I was there. And it's um, it's good to know that even now it can still take on people and people can still go there and it's thriving and you know she said she misses 119 but there's so many people and the one other thing I noticed about being there is some people keep their doors closed but a lot of people keep most people keep their doors open and it actually is a community and you know whether it's a community about sharing resources or collaborating it's just a human community and being around other creative people and um, people that I interviewed while I was there it's like their lifeblood being there. It doesn't even matter if who's next door to you or who's down the hall, what kind of practice they have. Being around people that are creating causes more creativity. It's yeah. osmosis. It just happens. Agreed. And without it, it dies. Well, one of the, we actually did a survey a couple months ago to ask those questions. Like, what do you value as we kind of think about programming? Because we've only owned it for less than 18 months. Right. This is relatively new. And so the survey was meant to figure out, like, what really do you care about? And I thought one of the interesting outcomes was that one of the things they cared about was the knowledge, knowing that it wasn't going to be sold out from them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that people would move there and stay there knowing that because most of these they people could invest. Well, they also they've been kicked out of a lot of places by the time if you, that's like it'd be interesting to figure out like how many people's the average number of studios they've lost over the years. You know, it's it's Sad quite story. numbering uh, yes. a lot of number. So so identifying the as a value proposition was knowing that it wasn't going to be sold and that the it's idea huge. was affordable. Um, you know, the, the, the whole purpose is to keep it affordable, mm-hmm. permanent. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, but, o- but it's only because Carl Frey, who's the founder of it and the developer, it was only because he decided to keep it artist was it did it work. So, so we were an extension of his legacy. Mm-hmm. But if he didn't, if he, if he had wanted the most money to sell it for, or if he had passed away and his, you know, like, you know, it's really, it, part of this secret sauce of what we're going to get to, which is what are the ingredients required to make this work is you have to have a seller who gives a shit. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, we know it's it really happens. hard to compete. Mm-hmm. I can't compete with a for-profit developer. Never. To, I never could have competed. The, one, it took us, it took us 18 months to do the closing where most developers would, you'd be closing three months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he had to both give money, time, you know, so there's a lot of things that are required. In some ways, of it's seller. charity. I mean, it might but not be 100. percent He made a huge donation. He made a he made a multi million dollar donation to make mm-hmm. this work. No, mm-hmm. it's now that that's an extreme example of what one person's willing to do. But mm-hmm. even now, we're looking at a building, and I had to ask the owner to say, "Look, I'm not a traditional buyer. One of the things I do need is more time. And if you can't give me that time, I understand. But I'm not going to be successful if you if Correct. you hold me to the same." time standards of a for-profit developer who's got a bank account can write you a check. Like, I don't have that ability. Right. Um, so I'm dealing with that right now. Mm-hmm. And I haven't heard back from that owner as whether he is open to giving more time. I'm literally waiting on that Well, and today. he might see it as a risk. I mean, that's what also oh. happened with Humphrey Street is that we were working with the owners and they gave us time and then they were like, yeah, you're never going to get it together and yeah. sold it to someone else. Like right. it, and then we, right. got, we got it back. But um, right, but it, right. You, but it, if that had it, worked out, mm-hmm. if that other buyer had finished the deal, you would have well, been. Well, that SOL. goes back to you know your uh, the recipe and the ingredients are accessibility to liquid cash. Yeah, capital. This is a capital intensive piece. I say it all the time, but equity equals equity. It's an interesting thing that the it's the same word, same spelling, same pronunciation, and how vastly different those two words are. But in this case. Capital is equity. Equity is is capital. It, you need the you need those financial resources for the equity portion of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so where 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 would portion. one get such equity? Well, I think that's going to be the challenge, which is that it has to come from multiple sources. I mean, look at Humphrey Street. Uh, your equity, your investment capital came from a bunch of different sources, private mm-hmm. philanthropy, mm-hmm. the city, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that you had a developer who could probably upfront some of the pre-development costs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had funders who are willing to mm-hmm. take a chance. You had the time. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of in-kind. Think mm-hmm. of all the hours of all the people who volunteered. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars that otherwise would have been paid consultants. Correct. So if you take the total cost to do that deal, it's really just quite astounding. Mm-hmm. Now, is it a good investment because it's permanent? Of course. Yeah, it's amazing. But you almost lost it because you ran out of time. Oh, then right. they almost lost it before. If COVID never happened, we wouldn't be having this conversation right great, now. Great point. Yeah. So weirdly, sometimes, you know, environmental issues sometimes can slow things down because it might make it less attractive to a for-profit developer. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's why this this is such a systems complex conversation because you do need all the players. Like if you kind of um, 
took apart the Humphrey deal and took at all the different elements or all the different ingredients that made that successful is a lot. And it's not replicable without it. Well, it's, I, yeah, I, I never say, I always say that, you know, lightning in a bottle is not public policy. Correct. But there are ingredients to it that you can learn from to say, okay, maybe this is a different deal, but we are probably going to need a, a, a seller. Resources, yes. You're going to sell her that cares. You're mm-hmm. going to need resources. You're going to need government. You're going to need policy. It needs to be the right tax. time in the right in the time continuum. So we um, left off talking about how great Lowell is and about we started talking about the ingredients to the recipe for ownership, preservation, perpetuity, uh, saving artist spaces. Is there anything else we want to talk about Western Ave? Uh, just come check it out. Yeah, come check it out. It's a it's a great place. And it's a great community. So you can check out their website online. They have open studios the first Saturday of each month. And um, again, there's the makerspace in between and there's uh, lofts. And in the summers, there's stuff outside. Outside, yeah. Amazing restaurants Mm -hmm. nearby. Just Mm -hmm. incredible food. Warp and weft and, you know, all kinds of places. Amazing, yeah. Excellent. What was your connection to, if anything, or even just purview of the Piano Factory? Oh, Piano Factory. So I was actually, back in the day, I actually worked at the Mass Housing Finance Agency back when the Piano Factory was part of the portfolio of Mass Housing. That's how far back I go with respect to that. And so then eventually it did get um, it's called expiring use. So they have contracts where it's affordable up to a certain point, And then when those expire, the developer can do kind of whatever they want. And so Piano Factory is a product of an expiring use affordable housing project. Well, then that could be another conversation. So um, for people who don't know, the Piano Factory um, is was um, a giant artist live work community correct on the border between the South End and Roxbury on Tremont Street, correct. right at Southampton. Yep. It had a theater, a gallery in the front. I don't know what it has now. But a handful of years ago, there was huge protest of the change of use and the artists getting evicted. Because again, it was hundreds of artists there. I know um, Wayne Stratman. I don't know if you know him. He's a glass sculpture and light artist. He was at Piano Factory and he was displaced from there. He's actually one of the artists that's being displaced from 119 Braintree. Mm. Some of the artists have many Uh, displacement stories in their lives. But he told me that Vita Urbana actually got involved. Do you know them? So they do um, housing advocacy and they did a whole campaign, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But meanwhile, um, that is now luxury condos? Correct. Okay. So Piano Factory, it's on our list of things we've lost. Lots of things in Jamaica Plain. I know about uh, 128 Brookside. Uh, that was a thing. Then there was something on Amory Street that is still empty and had displaced artists over 10 years ago. It just keeps happening. And pretty recently was the EMF building in Central Square, Cambridge. That was about 300 musicians and visual artists all displaced. And then that gets us to Humphrey Street. With all of your experience and what you've seen, whether you know from pre-Midway to Western Ave to now, um, like what is your view on cultural displacement. To me, it's just, it's super depressing. We talk about it, that it's been happening for decades. There hasn't been enough either advocacy or advocacy combined with solution and power to flip it and to change it. And it just keeps happening, keeps happening, keeps happening, keeps happening, keeps happening. 
keeps happening. Yeah, and there are, but there are some, you know, positive. You got you, you got Humphrey Street. You have uh, you know Grub Street with their new space. I would I would consider the ICA in the sea, in the seaport originally being, you know, look, that is now centering that whole community there, and that was you know that was a move from a relatively small space in the back bay. So you know when groups do get the support and it is permanent, they do become centering places in a community. Um, and so I, I think of them more like we have plans for we have plans for beaches and parks and forests. We have land banks and land trusts. Uh, we have a lot of different tools and resources available for the preservation of community space. Mm-hmm. And so what all of us in our different ways, and we're calling it different things, but at the end of the day, we're talking about like a cultural land trust. We're talking about the permanent preservation of community space focused on arts and culture. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously the biggest institutions in the city have always had that privilege because they've owned it for hundreds of years. So think of the biggest institutions, they all own their own buildings, they Mm -hmm. own their own space. Mm -hmm. And that gives them the, the freedom and power to add on to it and do big capital campaigns and do new wings and those kind of things. But that those are, those are cultural assets Mm -hmm. and they're just owned by institution legacy institutions. Mm -hmm. With lots of capacity and lots of staff and lots of resources to be able to. Yeah. hundred percent. They have endowments. They have, you Mm -hmm. know, they built up hundreds of years of resources. Those resources have not been extended to small to midsize organizations based in community. And as communities gentrify, we lose the groups that are, best serving are often, you know, centered right in those communities. So I think all of us are working to do what is what's necessary to support those small to mid-sized organizations. Whose job is it to prevent arts and cultural displacement? Job, that's an interesting choice of words. Job. Um, Responsibility. Well, it, it would be one, one is reactionary and one is responsive. I'm going to go with and because remember, I lived through 20 years of getting the call after the building's been bought and after the artists get their termination of tenancy. So that's a that's a reactive moment. All I can do is buy you time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in terms of systems responsiveness, what are the systems we need to create in order to be responsive to opportunities to preserve buildings and, and support individual artists and, and arts groups that are working in community. So if you think of it, in, if you kind of pick that, then then you have a whole list of ways that we could do it. We need capital. We need policy, tax policy. So now you need government involved. You need advocacy. You need uh, individuals. Most of the time, the groups I worked, it's a small group of individuals that find a building, buy a building. A lot of the arts buildings were just a bunch of people trying to save a studio for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of these buildings exist. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd still love to empower individuals to buy and own their own buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, Arts organizations often don't have the resources to buy the buildings where where they're actually working. Uh, in the communities they work in. So how do we support them? Mm-hmm. Uh, you need philanthropy to get on board. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is that the time it takes to bid on a property is short. And it's already gone by the time you it's can It's already get, gone. Yeah. So you, th- there is a, there's a time problem we have to solve. That by the time something becomes an issue, you already have had to have the money mm-hmm. to be able to respond or you have to have access to people or organizations or government or philanthropy or foundations or whatever to be able to get it. And you saw that with Humphrey Street. You needed you needed access to capital on a time well, line. And, and what we're facing now with so many... So since Humphrey Street, we've been contacted by 
We, we have eight current groups that are either on the cusp of being evicted or, you know, likely at risk. The problem the what we've been talking about a lot is um, just the lack of inventory. And of course, duh. But every time there's a risk of displacement, there's just nowhere to put anyone. There's waiting lists at almost every artist and music studio from here to Lowell. And it cannot house the number of people when there is a group displacement. And part of what we're, you know, shorter term trying to do is if there's just one group of inventory that we could, you know, be ready for the next displacement, that could start to help change the trajectory of things but it's about the right property the right time the right money the right situation the owner the owner being cool you can have all the data you want you can have you can have a list and there's been lists generated Mm -hmm. for years Mm -hmm. um but if if we're thinking about working with owners as major donors Mm -hmm. so then yes if you could work with them years before they want to sell the building or you can raise the capital so that they can sell it for a reasonable price or they can do whatever they want. You know, so there is a matter of if we have a longer time trajectory, because again, if this whole thing is about responding to a crisis, then work. that it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. That same policy hasn't worked for 30 years. So I don't, I don't really and expect it's not it. Working working. It's not working now. You, you probably have, if you were to add up the total capital required to address everyone on your client list right now, it's probably mm-hmm. $50 million. Mm-hmm. So unless you have $50 million, you are not going to serve these people in the time you need to find them new space. Right. I was actually uh, thinking to myself the other day, how much, how many more months or years do all of our volunteers have in us to keep, you know, this happening? There's a capacity issue. And, and that's a, you know, <laughs> right. there's a capacity issue. This is, we, we're, 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 we're trying to address an institutional problem, a system problem that's heavy requiring capital mm-hmm. in a way with volunteers. Mm-hmm. So if, we, if we're expecting to solve a, a systems institutional problem with volunteers, it is then unlikely. yeah, right. it's not going to be, that's, not, that, that's a short-term approach to many ways. This is, this is going to require dozens of nonprofit developers, each with a different lens, a different goals, and and then all the other ingredients we talked about it and 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 having those groups of government and policies funders both local regional national um because there's not one group that's going to solve this this is a system it's like affordable housing these mm-hmm. are complex mm-hmm. multi-generational multi and for housing there is advocacy professional advocacy and they're still in crisis yes and and yes right and there is government subsidy and there's all kinds and it's the priority for every single municipality and they're still in crisis they they can't they are they are in crisis right um and so this is just another reflection of that same these are 40 years of planning that have gotten us here what is your dream for cultural space in our region my dream would be that the groups, like I think some of the groups I enjoy working with the most are the the community groups is to, for them to have permanent safe space to do their programming. You know, I've just seen too many great local organizations get, 
They, somebody say, oh, well, they can just find another space. Well, they're serving that community. So unless that other space is in their community, no, they can't. I can't, you can't move a group that's working in the South End and say, oh, I got a cheap space in Lowell for you. It's right. like, it doesn't matter. Uh, we've know? been using the word place keeping. Place keeping. Right? I love that. Yeah. That's instead great. of place making, like there's enough place making. That's great. Let's get back to place keeping. And I love that. I think that I'd love that. Yeah. So, yeah. So that idea of, uh, and I do think there has to be some shared spaces, uh, in order for this to work, I love that. I mean, if you go to New York and they have those their shared dance complexes mm-hmm. and those kind of things, look mm-hmm. at the dance complex in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Think of how much activity is wonderful programming mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is coming out of a relatively small space and a giant hub of people and assets. And, yeah, yeah, think mm-hmm. of all the choreographers and organizations and and the programming and presenting that happens in just one building. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And looking at Green Street versus dance complex. Mm-hmm. One was owned by the artist mm-hmm. or a nonprofit that had a mission and one wasn't. Mm-hmm. One is still around. One, one is, is not. not. They're on the list of cultural loss. But all it, but it's also then all the artists that were there, the different types of choreographers that would gravitate more to green versus the other. I mean, so it, it is, it is uh, you probably need five more. Yes. With different flavors of the same ice cream, you know? It's true. Well, this has been an amazing conversation and we have conversations that go on and on and I'm sure we'll have more. Is there anything that I haven't asked or anything that you want to touch on or talk about or share before we... uh... No, I think I would just, I would would highlight one other thing that I think about a lot and we talk about a lot is, again, we mentioned this idea of time Mm. and I think we have to recalibrate our sense of time is that if we're looking for permanent solutions, then then we have to adjust that it's going to take it's going to take more capital it takes more time to generate capital it has to be ready access to capital so it's not just oh somebody's got a lot of resources they have to be ready to let go of the control of those resources in a very short period of time mm-hmm. and you know traditional philanthropy is much more risk averse it's much more takes more time it's it is relationship based but it seems like only the major institutions have the resources available for, for quick action. Mm-hmm. And even then they probably would argue, well, even us, it takes us the time to, to respond. And, I, and I, I respect that. But I do think we need to recalibrate our sense of time. And that if we are going to need more capital, most of the groups we work with, small to mid-sized individual artists, do not have the fundraising development capacity that is required for transformative generational gifts. Right. Or that's quick enough. That's quick enough. So it takes, it's like, oh, I, it's sometimes you see stuff in the paper like, oh, somebody just gave this much money. Yeah. But that was 40 year relationship. It looks like it's five minutes. No, no, that that's probably 40 years it took and maybe generational relationships to that institution. And maybe they had somebody who had particular illness and they were, that person was saved by it. These are, these are, these are emotional connections. Mm Mm-hmm. In order well, to in do real that. estate transaction, like you're saying, it moves very fast and it's very traditionally or overwhelmingly capitalistic and oh, 100%. It is it's commercial. the most pure form of it. Well, yeah. and it's, you know, it's like the transactions are quick as yeah. long as you have the amount. Yeah. If you have the money, you have it down and then you have access to, you can you wire have, it in you, a second. Yeah. If you have access to debt and you, you know, most of these deals are 70, 30, so you 70% debt and 30% equity, mm-hmm. you got 30% in the bank and you know where to get the 70 this is what they do. They're professionals in this space. So we are we are competing with professional, well-resourced individuals and organizations, and we are trying to do it permanently. And we're it's trying- a culture clash. It's a culture clash of like the real estate 
way that that works and the trajectory and the quickness of it versus all this non-profit, non-profit philanthropic, non-liquid, those two things don't go together. Yeah. And we have to redefine risk. We have to redefine the sense of time. And we have to appreciate that if we're going to raise the capital, then we're asking the groups with the least amount of capacity from a fundraising perspective to raise the most amount of capital. And that just seems like a setup to me. It seems like a total catch-22 and a total, total inequitable access to capital and, and, and resources. And the idea that uh, we're putting that on the group in a short period of time and we say, well, we're, you know, why isn't this working? Well, we do need it. I do think we need a systems approach to this. Um, but there are interesting people doing really interesting projects all around. We have Fitchburg Art Museum. Yep. Mm-hmm. They're doing artist housing now yep. with, in a mm-hmm. partnership with the CDC, which yep. is a community development corporation. Mm-hmm. How cool is that? Yep. You know, He's um, going to be here in yeah, the seat oh, next great. week. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, Nick's going to be here. Yep. That's great. Uh-huh. Um, um, Minio is doing great. Jean Minio doing great work in her project. Mm-hmm. Again, you have you have Grub Street securing permanent space for them. Mm-hmm. Humphrey Street. Mm-hmm. We're in a great space with the Record Co., which totally. is amazing, nonprofit, yes. mission-driven, affordable yes. space. Yes. So there are some real incredible wins happening lately. So we need to, as a coalition, bring together all the people and try to bring all of our abundance together and see what we can all do together. Yeah, agreed. And I, I do think that is the that's going to be part of the solution is anyone trying to th- have one group solve this Um it's just too big. The geography is too big. There's too mm-hmm. many needs. Every community is different. What they need, every building's different, mm-hmm. and having the flexibility to have the resources to support each zoning other. Code. <laughs> zoning code, zoning code, tax codes, <laughs> right. right? I mean, yeah, most of being four point benefited that back in the day when they allowed a, a subtle zoning code tax change for the for the owners to to support it. Like there are these kind of hacks that can be done. Well, and there's also things kind of. Um, well, I was going to say. Uh, competing or uh, preventing each other. But in Somerville, well, we could talk about Boston, but in Somerville, they have a fabrication zone, which is a protection for light industrial and creative use. And they also have an ACE set aside, um, arts and creative enterprise, where development happens and they have to put money aside. Brilliant. But the city itself doesn't have um, the kind of financial resources that, say, Boston does. So, like, Boston was has had a good amount of ARPA money, has had a good amount of resources that have helped some of these projects. But we don't yet have the zoning. We don't yet have an ACE set aside. The we don't the tax. Right. So it's yeah. uh, meaning, and that's kind of why um, also the MAPC and their regional project with Boston, Cambridge, and Somerville, probably in about six months, they're going to have a report to everyone yep. to say, that's gonna be here's great. how we can act regionally instead of competing with each other or instead of, because people live regionally and people operate regionally and it would, we're really hurting the ecosystem by not having systems that can talk to each other and totally work together. Agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Especially when it comes to resources. So when we, when we, when we evaluate a property to, to look at for the creative campus program, we do a 35 minute drive around the property. So it's not necessarily the, where that is per se, when we kind of do our analysis, because people drive within 40 minutes yep. of Western Ave. Yep. So it's, it's it, to your point, it is boundaries are irrelevant in that way. It's mm-hmm. a question of affordability. Mm-hmm. Can I afford it? Is it a good fit for my creative practice? And people will, people will go. And you as know. you know, right now, there are still properties you can buy in Somerville. There are. I mean, they're expensive, but yeah. there are some you can buy. But 
Somerville Arts Council and its, you know, version doesn't have any resources to help put towards that. Yeah. But Boston does, but they can't take their resources and put it into Somerville. Sure. Look at the Foundry. Foundry is yes. an amazing property exactly. in Cambridge. Think of that's a great, exactly. I think that's a great story of a combination of for-profit city, nonprofit collaboration. That's a, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful permanent property in Cambridge now. Very, very. Um, that's a long path and an expensive path, but, Very a, expensive. but a great outcome. Yes. But it's permanent. Yes. No one ever no one ever goes to Arches National Park and says, I wonder how much it costs to buy this. <laughs> no one cares. The next day it doesn't matter. No one cares what Cranes Beach cost. Right. The answer is money. What's the question? That's yeah. uh, that's my uh, that's apparently that's my catchphrase. That's that's uh, I'm going to be known for now. I guess we should get t-shirts. <laughs> yeah. The answer is money. What's the question? The, the so answer... the story is yeah. The story is I had a board member. All right. And every time I called him, he would answer the phone and he would say, uh, the answer is money. What's the question? And he would say it super fast and kind of mumble it. And then inevitably, every single time. I was at, that was the answer. And so I, it stuck with me. So now when we talk about real estate, I always say the answer is money. What's the question? Well, and that is true. And that is the theme, i.e. access to capital. But one other funny note for people who may or may not know, a couple of weeks ago on the Sunday Globe, there was an article about artist displacement, looking at it from different ways, kind of what we're doing here. And lots of people were interviewed for it, including Jim Grace and um, the uh, mic drop Last quote was <laughs> that was so funny to, to end the, <laughs> the article answer is with money. That. What's the question? Yeah, and that's how it ended, which I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, um, that was funny. But that was classic. So um, we will get the t-shirts. He did say that he said, so this is your quote. And he said, he's like, it's really on brand. And I was like, oh, is that my, is that my on brand? Uh, my on brand of going to be known for that? It is now. I guess so. So great. Well, um, Jim, thank you for your time. Thank you for all the help that you do in our uh, creative sector. Thank you. And the Arts and Business Council. Um, We will, I'm sure, have many, many more conversations and um, let's uh, build a village. Yeah. Thanks for having me and thanks for all your work. And uh, and yeah, I look forward to other other many conversations. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. You can listen to all of the episodes from our website, artstayshere.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our partners, New Alliance Audio, New Alliance East, and The Record Co. And thank you for the funding from Boston's Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. Join the movement at artstayshere.org.